looking at you, kid. I'm Charles Foster King! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. What is going on, everybody? This is Wrong Real episode 543. It's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles where we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And today we are joined by one of my favorite pop culture commentators on YouTube, Ryan Airy from Screen Crush. When it comes to breaking down and analyzing giant franchises like the MCU, Star Wars, or the Snyderverse, I think he might be the best in the game. And we have our mutual friend Bill Scurry to thank for getting him on the show. So, Mr. Airy, welcome to Wrong Real. Hey, James. Thanks for having me. It's an honor. Bill speaks quite highly of you. Yeah, well, it's a weird thing where I watch a lot of your videos, and it's strange to interview somebody where you kind of think you know somebody, but you have the, like this unearned familiarity where you <laughs> yeah, have not talked to me yeah. before. So yeah. for people out there who haven't been uh, following your videos, just tell us a little bit about yourself, what is Screen Crush, what kind of content you create on a weekly basis. All right. Well, I'm a video producer, writer, editor at Screen Crush which is a website owned for the main company that I work for, Town Square Media. So I actually help with all the other video brands that Town Square Media owns. Double XL, which is hip hop. I'm you know, part of their video team and kind of supervise some of the stuff they do. Uh, but Screen Crush is focused on, like you said before, mostly major franchises because that's where you know, the action, the hits, that's where the money is. But it's also just a passion project of mine. You know, I grew up reading comics, watching Star Wars movies, Star Trek. The Lord of the Rings, like I love all that stuff. And so I get to talk about it for a living now and share this like vast reservoir of knowledge I've developed with, you know, hundreds of thousands of people because of shows like WandaVision and The Mandalorian. I mean, you, you, I think you can even modify that to millions because I've been noticing some of your WandaVision videos recently have been hitting a million plus on a weekly basis. So yeah. congrats, congratulations. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, thanks. Yeah, it, that, sh- that show and your commentary are both taken off. But I guess uh, for me, I also I dabble in YouTube and I, and I obviously have my podcast. But how much time and energy do you budget for like researching each individual video? Because obviously there's an enormous amount of just text and data that you're cramming in. But also, how do you decide which shows and movies receive the Ryan Airy treatment? Because obviously something like Watchmen or WandaVision, they're mm-hmm. ideal because they have so many Easter eggs kind of tucked away inside. But what do you do if you have a show maybe like, like Queen's Gambit that appeals to your personal taste mm-hmm. but doesn't necessarily lend itself to being analyzed in that same format? That's, that's strange you mentioned Queen's Gambit. You just opened up a whole box for me to talk about. Um, that's my favorite novel. Or if not my favorite, it's in my top three. And um, for years ago, I was in touch with Walt Tevis's, the author's widow about making a documentary about it. And it was going pretty well. And my wife and I, she was going to produce it. We gathered a bunch of research. And then all of a sudden, the widow stopped talking to us. Uh, and there was another documentary that was on the Hustler Blu-ray. So we kind of went, oh, OK, that already said kind of what we want to say. Um, then I saw Queen's Gambit as a fan. Like, oh, OK, I'm not going to make a video about this. And I thought it was a, a, a pretty good, ad, a very good adaptation. And Scott Frank wrote and directed yeah. each episode, correct? Yes, he did. Yeah, yeah. And he did a terrific job. There were some things... Um, if you're a fan of the book, I and it's been a while since I've read it, you know, the second time, but the visual is she does visualize chess by looking at the ceiling. I don't think the book is over as as overt with the connection between her taking the pills and, and like it being a superpower. You know, like everything has to be superhero related now. I don't I don't remember. I don't think it's quite that way in the book, but you're adapting this for a visual medium. So I understand and I forgive. Um, so when the, that series got so popular, I had no idea it was so popular. And somebody mentioned it to me and I was like, oh, well, I'll do a video on Walter Tevis. So we have one ready to go and we're going to post it the day after the Golden Globes. And on a 
very slim chance. See, I went to the same university that Walter Tevis taught at, and my favorite professor was his chess partner. Gotcha. So years very ago, cool. when we were talking about this documentary, he agreed to be interviewed. And I was like, oh, well, when I, this is obviously pre-COVID. I was like, oh, when I'm in Ohio, we'll do this. And it didn't, and because the documentary fell apart, it never really came together. Then I just messaged him, and I just got the email from him, his reply. And unfortunately, he's already being interviewed for a PBS documentary about Walter Tevis, so he can't do one for me, which is a bummer because he's a great professor and I'd love to talk to him. And Did you tell him that Screen Crush gets way more traffic than PBS and that he should go with you instead? <laughs> he's, I think he's under contract. That's, I did. I tried to play this and like, mm, you're a really good professor. Thank you. But no, I don't think that'll happen. Um, so with Queen's Gambit, it's a rare opportunity for me to go, oh, crap, I could totally just do this right now. You know, like I can get this video out about something I'm more passionate, well, not more passionate about, but that's not normally our audience. But it's outside of the typical kind of genre, sci-fi, fantasy, superhero realm that y'all typically tackle. Yes, but it's still huge. Yeah. That's yeah. the thing. Like, I got my hair cut the other day, and the, it's like a barbershop, but they have a chessboard set up because these guys saw Queen's Gambit, and they learned how to play, and they're super into it. Like, it's more of a phenomenon, I think, than I realized because we're inside. And I'm yeah, not my like brother-in-law's been teaching chess to all my nieces and nephews, and they've got a chess board permanently set up in their home now. And because he and my sister watched Queen's Gambit, loved it. And he loved chess as a kid, and is kind of getting back into it. But oh, know, Walter cool. Tevis, I read The Hustler maybe like 15 years ago, loved it. And I, obviously I've been a big fan of the uh, the original film as well as Color of Money, but it sounds like I need to dip my toes back into the world of Walter Tevis. If you, uh, if you have a chance to read Queen's Gambit and Mockingbird, Mockingbird is one of his few novels that has not been adapted. Uh, it's phenomenal. It's pretty great. Excellent. And when you know, when you know more about his life, all of his work was extremely autobiographical. In fact, his last novel, um, or a second to last steps of the sun is so autobiographical. It's almost unreadable. <laughs> it's not very good, but all of his other work is, it's just, fan he's just an amazing writer and we lost him too soon. Like he spent too long in an alcoholic oblivion, just like Beth Harmon does. Uh, and Eddie Felsen and all these other characters he created. So just the fact that we were able to get the work from him that we got is, is really a lucky and a blessing. It seems like when it comes to genius and creativity and substance abuse, there's definitely correlation, although some people mistake that for causality. And like, oh, well, if I want to be a genius, I need to just get absolutely trash. It. Like, well, no, it doesn't really quite work that way. <laughs> yeah, that's not how addiction works. I mean, I think with Tevis, um, he had his, a complicated home life as well. But also you get hooked on that high of writing. You know, and when you can't quite get it through work, you have to try to get it through alcohol or, or yeah. whatever else. Yeah, you know, start chasing yeah. the dragon, so to speak. Well, yeah, I, I absolutely adored Queen's Game. I've been a fan of uh, Scott Frank ever since he wrote the adaptation of Out of Sight back in the late 90s. Yeah. And he's making this incredible transition into being like a TV auteur, which I guess – is this are we entering a new phase now where the the quote unquote auteurs were storytellers of a singular vision? I mean, I'm thinking of people like uh, like um, um, uh, Too Old to Die Young or like uh, or the Twin Peaks: The Return. Like there there's certain shows and movies now or certain shows now where you have a singular voice with the screenplays as well as with the direction. Is the era of the auteur filmmaker kind of over? And are we entering into a, a new phase with like these these streaming auteurs? I think that. If the, you know, well, the medium is the message, right? So I think that as long as uh, it benefits the the format that they're telling from, why not? You know, there's other examples too, like Alex Garland, you know, the devs. Absolutely. Uh, who's, loved. Who works in both. It's yeah. a terrific sci-fi show. And I'm not sure if that was an adaptation or not. I know that uh, Annihilation, I think, was an adaptation, but yeah. I don't want to speak. Yeah. Um, 
uh, True Detective, you know, first season, same writer, same director, every episode. Yeah, exactly. So I think when there's room for that story to be told, why not? Oh, uh, Julian Fellows, Downton Abbey, which I think that show suffered a lot in quality because it was one person writing Louis C.K., same thing. So as long as the person has a vision that works in that format, I mean, I'm all for it. You know, I I do. There is a risk, though. You know, Queen's Gambit's a limited series. And I think had it been like 20 episodes or like a, a more procedural show, it definitely wouldn't have worked. Yeah, and it could have just as easily been a three-hour epic film as well and worked just as well. I guess now like the, the impulse is always, what are the shows that we can build a business around as opposed to recognizing what's a standalone story? Queen's Gambit does not need a sequel. But something mm-hmm. like The Boys can obviously get turned into more of, like, more of a business. But speaking of uh, superheroes and whatnot, let's get a little nerdier. First-person intel from inside the Westview anomaly. What are we looking at here? Is it an alternate reality, time travel? It's a sitcom. Starring two Avengers? That's a working theory. Well, I know the apron is a bit much, dear, but I am doing my best to blend in. Hello, dear. Hiya, kid. Hiya, kiddos. Life moves pretty fast out in the suburbs. Something's wrong here. <laughs> Should we just take it from the top? Wanda, Wanda. I don't know how any of this started. What is outside of Westfield? Yeah, I'm not sure what that's about. It's probably just a case of the Mondays. <laughs> Am I right? Yes, my love. Are you crying? But I'm invested. Of all the shows and movies on the immediate horizon in 2021, if you were to guess, what's going to be the absolute motherload for your approach to Screen Crush when it comes to breakdowns, Easter eggs, just like that really, like that minutia level analysis? Um, <coughs> if you would have asked me on January 1st, I would have said WandaVision, and I would have been right, I yeah. think. You know, WandaVision is a show that I was always most intrigued by of all the Marvel shows because it looked like it was unafraid to be weird. And it, and it isn't. You know, it is unafraid Especially to be like weird. Especially like the first two or three episodes. Exactly. It didn't – I, which surprised me. I thought they would start off a little more standard and then introduce that aspect and it would be a section of it. I was so happy that they went for the, the, the television format, the tease and release, which is like a comic book brought to life. Comic books – are serialized, they always end on a cliffhanger. So TV is actually a natural companion for that, you know, those stories. Um, after this, I'd have to look and see, I think the, the we're not going to get a new Mandalorian season, but the Book of Boba Fett's going to be this year. That'll be, I think and it's December, like mid-December. I think so too, yeah. Going to ruin yet another family Christmas for me <laughs> uh, when that episode drops. Um, I think that is the one that'll reward the, the knowledge of minutia the most. Because Star Wars has 40, 50 years of stories for me to draw from. Whereas, you know, the MCU is great, but it's been around for a shorter period of time. But the MCU also has done a greater job of keeping a cohesiveness to it. So as far as for my job, finding all these Easter eggs and connections, 
they're very deliberately always trying to put those in and seeding them, seeding things years in advance. Whereas with Boba Fett, it'll be like, oh, yeah, look, we use the writing from the video game on the throne. Although I'm hoping that with Loki and Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, that because they're so otherworldly and so multidimensional, that we're going to see all sorts of continuities starting to be referenced from the past, like continuities that may or may not be canon to the MCU, but I'm thinking that it might at least like make some of the, like, those previous iterations of characters become more relevant and kind of get consolidated under all one roof. But um, it's funny, when I was watching some of your videos earlier today, it was reminding me of the, did you ever see Lost Boys back in the 80s? Oh, yeah. All right. It's so been the, a the while. grandfather, how he's obsessed with reading the TV guide. He's like, you need to read the TV guide. You don't need a TV. Is there an audience huh. now for content like yours where they love the breakdowns and the data and the information, but they don't necessarily even want to watch the shows or movies anymore? Like, are we entering a new phase where the discussion around shows p- potentially even eclipses the content itself? Well, I wouldn't say eclipses because I, I don't think anyone would ever watch an Easter egg breakdown without watching the show. Um, I even, you know, we'll do trailer breakdowns too. And increasingly trailer breakdowns just don't do as well as the actual shows because people don't want them spoiled for them. Yeah. Fair enough. I, look at the numbers. You can look at like the trailer, the number of hits that we have. Um, but I do think that, especially with everybody at home, that online discussion following watching a show and the same thing is true when you read a book or listen to an album, read and you know, watch a movie that, but that online discussion is key to what I do. And really, it's the same thing that's been on the Internet for years. I mean, since the Internet began, I think probably the first thing that anybody ever chatted was like about the TNG finale. You know, the very first thing I ever looked up on the Internet ever was combinations for Mortal Kombat 2 because I, I only did <laughs> like one or two. But yeah, I was, it was my first year at UVA, yeah. fall of 1995, and I had a, a Super NES in my room. And I was like, yeah, so it's, this, this uh, genre entertainment has always been uh, yeah, at, at the front of my brain when it comes to researching things online. The first thing I ever looked up was your mom jokes. Oh, nice. Very cool. You still got, do you have any just good funny. ones that you are still locked away in the back of your mind? Oh, just the ones everybody knows. Yeah, the ones, mom, the only ones I can really remember are like from the beginning of uh, White Men Can't Jump, but they have, they have a couple of good ones. Right. And it's like, oh, yeah. well, it's like, anyway, well, let me just get off mama since I just got off yours and all that kind of stuff. But right. Yeah, some, and Living some, Color had a sketch back in the day that was full of them. And I think that kind of ignited the interest. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're great. They've been, then they kind of morphed into Chuck Norris jokes uh, later exactly. on. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, just big, uh, big predictions for WandaVision. We've got two episodes left, and this uh, podcast will get posted before the penultimate episode. Everybody keeps talking about this Luke Skywalker moment that may or may not be coming right now. Will you, will you, uh, I guess, make a a bold claim about which fan favorite character from either the MCU or other continuities might mm-hmm. be popping in for a visit before the end of the season? It's tough because. The one who I think is just most likely is Doctor Strange. It makes the most sense. I've got a theory for a video. Hopefully it comes out today. We'll see if it gets finished today. That he's the one sending the commercials to Wanda. That they're like part of his messages being scrambled. Um, but that seems a little too easy. So I'm going to – and you asked for a bold prediction. So I'm going to say Phoenix. That they're going to bring Sophie Turner's Jean Grey oh, wow. into the Marvel Cinematic <laughs> Universe. Because in the comics, she is also a Nexus being – and that it makes sense, like at the end of Dark Phoenix, I think she just disappears or something, that she will be reborn as the Phoenix, you know, because that's what the Phoenix does in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. There, why not? I mean, <laughs> I read the Claremont Byrne run of the Phoenix saga basically oh, yeah. through X-Men 137 mm-hmm. a thousand times as a kid. It's one of my all-time favorite mm-hmm. artists. It's, it's in my bones. I've read it so many times. Mm-hmm. And to see that story destroyed twice now, 
It's like almost like <laughs> it's almost like please nobody ever mention Phoenix ever again. However, if Kevin Feige I, weren't attached to the right storyteller, I might be willing to give that story a third try. I'll be honest. I, I'm start. I'm leaning more and more to. Wouldn't it be great if there was an X Men introduction film and then they just became serialized on TV? Because yeah. I think these stories that we're talking about that we love so much work a lot better. And that yeah. slow like Inferno form. worked better because it was teased for like a year or two before Inferno even opened up. And like exactly. I mean, that late yeah. 80s kind of event era, Mutant Massacre, Inferno, all that great stuff, or Fall of the Mutants, it all got teased. And Chris Claremont was writing several titles, so he had the ability to plant those teases well in advance. And as a, just a little kid, like the dividends those pay is just so much fun and so dramatically satisfying when you finally get to the uh, the big reveals. And yeah, I guess the, the most, it seems like the most popular theory right now is that Ian McKellen might pop up as a. Uh, as Magneto or, you know, perhaps even Fastbender. But it seems like now there is the opportunity in an organic story fashion to bring in fan favorites from Fox's handling of that entire library. So who else is going to make the jump from other studios' handling of these characters, whether you're talking about Sony's handling of Spider-Man in the past prior to Tom Holland Mm -hmm. or Fox's 20-year run on the X-Men title? Who else is going to actually be employed apart from Ryan Reynolds in the MCU moving yeah. forward? To be honest, I don't think anyone. And I think if Ian McKellen does appear, it'll be as Mephisto and not as Magneto. I mean, for a, a very important reason. Like if you're Kevin Feige and you this is your baby and you've built this up from scratch. The, and even though he was around for the initial X-Men movie, he was in a, a producer on the first couple. I, I don't I, I wouldn't think he would want to bring these characters in. You know, wouldn't you want to introduce them on your own? Wouldn't you want to like show Wolverine fighting alongside Captain America or show, you know, Magneto and Professor Xavier, you know, working together, you know, during the Kosovo crisis in Eastern Europe or whatever, you know, whatever you want to do with them, however you want to integrate them. There's a million ways you can integrate these characters into the MCU. And, but then the question is why put Evan Peters in the show? You know, unless you're going to, this is going to be a hint to the multiverse. Why do that? It could just be that this the WandaVision Vision is an extremely meta show. It's a commentary on TV itself and on this you know concept of characters consuming entertainment. That could be it. And we don't know. We don't know who he really is. If he was pulled from the multiverse or inspired by the multiverse, if Wanda brought him in or if Agatha did, but or if he's he just some Wanda guy. Discussing their accents and why he looks different, I was thinking to myself, they are just like a half sentence away from explaining the Disney Fox merger. Like it's that meta. <laughs> you might <laughs> yeah, even really be willing was. to yeah. acknowledge that. And yeah, so all that stuff for me has been absolutely delightful. Yeah. Um, it wouldn't surprise me. The one I think is most likely are character or Spider-Man villains that we've seen introduced in other universes. And I say this for a pretty cynical reason. It's because Sony wants to introduce and maintain their own spider verse with a sinister six movie and a Craven movie. They want to use all that IP to make as much money as they can. So, the, the Spider-Man movie, which they just announced the title of, uh, No Way Home, is – for me, I'm a little cynical about it because when I hear rumors about them consolidating all these different characters, I think, well, it's like when I heard about Spider-Verse. I was very cynical because I was like, well, that's what they're doing. They're trying to create an idea that there is a Spider-Universe so they don't have to share Spider-Man with Marvel and that he can appear with Venom and all of these other projects they're developing. Yeah, I so, wish Disney I would just it, raise yeah. another however many billions and just get all that right. IP back from Sony. I know Sony will 
you'd have to pry the character from their cold, dead hands. And I think they actually own like 10% of the character, like in any medium. But it's like they 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 locked in a deal. They could have gotten the whole Marvel Universe like 20 years ago. They yeah. passed, yeah. and they just took yeah. Spidey. It's like, yeah, who thought that was a good idea? <laughs> I know. If I remember right, they sold their merchandising rights back to Marvel. Okay. Which was pretty stupid a few years ago. Um, I think... Marvel can put Spider-Man in any TV show under 30 minutes, okay. which is why he's in the animated shows, which to me makes me go, yeah, Disney Plus, just make a Spider-Man show. Um, and I believe that if Sony is bought by another company, those rights go back to Marvel. Interesting. So that's really what I, I keep an eye out for, because Sony, there were rumors for years like Sony was looking to sell the studio because it had all these problems, you know, with the leak and all that stuff. So if a streaming giant like Amazon, like Apple wanted to really step into that movie game, I could see them doing that. But how much is Sony worth? If Without Spider-Man. Yeah. Why would you even buy Sony if you don't get Spider-Man? For the infrastructure, I think. Yeah. Gotcha. You know, for just that, the library that they already have. Um, and then just for like the ability to produce that content, which is why I kind of look at Apple and go, they're starting, but they, they haven't like taken off. They don't have like a huge flagship show. So I could see them doing that. Yeah. I mean, just as a fan of somebody who grew up with the, like the Marvel comics universe from the mm -hmm. late 70s onward, if the idea of having characters not all under one roof, it just like it hurts my soul. And so I just am naturally antagonistic towards any handling of uh, the Spider-Man character, but also just movies like Amazing Spider-Man 2 just turn me against uh, – you know, Avi Arad and some of those other characters uh, kind of uh, forever. And so, yeah, the more that they can find a way to collaborate with Kevin Feige and get some of their creative input, but yeah, Morbius, I could not care less to see <laughs> what they're doing and with then the they, Vampire. And then they cram Vulture at the end of that trailer yeah. to set up the Sinister Six. Yeah. Like, oh, I guess, fine, guys. Go, you know, it's kind of like, you know, studios will do this. They will, they're like, you know, attack dogs. They'll latch into an idea, they won't be able to let it go. Like there was a producer at Warner Brothers for years. I can't remember who it was, but he's the guy who insisted Kevin Smith put a giant spider in a Superman Live script. Yeah, yeah, it's one of the, one of the best giant, monologues I've ever seen. But I, I love that rant. Yeah. And then the giant spider ended up in Wild Wild West. Yep. You know, another Warner Brothers movie, or how Warner Brothers is trying to kill Superman for like every Superman. Movie, well, when's he going to die? When's he gonna, we want to take advantage because this is a big story in the comics. Like it seems like movie studios will do that, and for Sony, it's the Sinister Six. They just look at that as their Avengers. That's their Spider-Man Avengers team for some reason. They I mean, want that solo film. I love the Sinister Six, and I've read so many different appearances by them. And obviously, I think it was the first Amazing Spider-Man annual where he had to fight them all one at a time. He had all these great yeah. splash pages drawn by Steve Ditko. Oh, yeah. They were absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. All the, they, it has all the potential in the world. They're not wrong, but they just they've, they've haven't given me a sing, single indication that they know how to do it correctly yet. But you know, I would love to be proven wrong. And that's the problem. Like when Batman versus Superman was announced, you know, Man of Steel is one of those movies. Some people like it. Uh, I can't, you know, Superman doesn't kill. I don't like it. But when Batman versus Superman was announced, they were like, oh, and Aquaman and all these people are going to be in. We were like, mm, hold on. Yeah, Marvel's why? already yeah. had to do this. And you're trying to rush and get that Avengers money as soon as possible. And ironically, you know, they rushed that movie out in 2017. It's now 2021. They could have they could have done it. They could have laid out their Avengers framework. And you know, made those characters appear one at a time, and Sony made the same mistake. Yeah, don't put your don't put your events and your franchises ahead of your individual movies because without the individual movies, the foundation just isn't there. Right, Civil War could have never worked if you actually had to develop every character who was in it, but it 
basically only had to introduce and develop one character, and that was Black Panther. Yeah. And reintroduce a, a teeny bit of Spidey, which was icing yeah. on the cake. And but we already know him. Yeah, and, and the movie just exactly. soared. Well, yeah. you mentioned uh, the Snyderverse. Let's talk a little bit about um, rival continuities and what the future might hold for the <laughs> continuity within the upcoming restored Zack Snyder's Justice League. No. strong enough. If you can't bring down the charging bull and don't wave the red cape at it, you were sent here for a reason. And even if it takes you the rest of your life, find out what that reason is. said the age of heroes will never come again. Are you anticipating more stories, shows, movies kind of branching out or building upon this? Or is this the official end of Zack Snyder's interpretation of the DC universe? Oh, I think it's, well, I think it's kind of the end. I think it's definitely the end of his involvement. I don't think you could pay Zack Snyder enough money to go work for those charlatans um, after what they did to him, and rightly so. I don't, and they clearly like want to switch directions, you know, with Shazam and Wonder Woman 84, you definitely see like there's no Snyder fingerprints on those at all. Um, I think they've been given a rare and beautiful gift, and that is the story Flashpoint. I think that we're going to see, they've already said, oh, we're going to see like Michael Keaton's Batman maybe in the production design of that and different versions of Batman. I think they're going to use Flashpoint as a way to kind of throw away the concept of a multiverse. So we won't care that there's a Matt Reeves Batman and that there's a, you know, all these different, different Batman and running and around. Two different versions of Cyborg out there, et cetera. Exactly. Yeah. And I also think they're just going to be able to restart the continuity and make it look like whatever they want. And then I don't, I don't know. I don't, are they still going to try to bring Gal Gadot's Wonder? Are they going to care like that Gal Gadot's Wonder Woman doesn't necessarily match up with this story? You know, that's my inclination is that they honestly yeah. are a little bit more cynical and just don't. They're not that invested. I feel like they kind of 
made up the idea of a multiverse as an excuse for why they have so many different versions of characters floating around there. Whereas mm -hmm. Marvel seems to be organically trying to earn it and build toward it, which is that's what you get when you have somebody with actually a vision for a shared connected universe, as opposed to this haphazard fashion over at Warner brothers. I agree. I think Warner brothers and Sony for them, it's about consolidating and milking their IP as, as best they can. It's more about the money. Whereas if, if it is what Marvel's doing, and presumably that's what Multiverse of Madness is doing and all these other indications we're getting with Spider-Man and so forth. If that's what Marvel's doing, then I think they will have a plan for it. You know, The What If show, that's not a coincidence that yeah. that's coming out the same year they're introducing all this other stuff. And it's no coincidence that also they are going to be reintroducing Fantastic Four and Mutants in the very near future. And what better way mm -hmm. than through the lens of a multiverse? Well, personally, I'm loving having the MCU in my life every Friday morning again. It feels a little bit, I man, I'm 44 years old, but I feel a little bit like a child getting up uh, for Saturday morning cartoons <laughs> and felt the same way for Mandalorian as well. It's just like, oh my God, I've been, I'm excited to wake up at three in the morning and, and watch something, which is a weird thing to acknowledge when you're past the midway point of uh, life, presumably. But have we started to reach a tipping point? where branded content on these streaming platforms generates more conversation online, more interest than perhaps these big budget franchises in the theater. Because I feel like the last year has accelerated a lot of these trends of what might've taken five to 10 years. We've kind of seen it happen in mm. one. And so is the, like if you were to bet right now on more shows like the Mandalorian and WandaVision over more movies like Endgame and infinity war, what does the future hold for all these uh, big branded shows? That's a great question. Um, I think that when it comes to the, the, the discourse, the conversation, you know, you'll never top interest like from Avengers Endgame. But that was a, an outlier because it's the culmination. It did all these different things. It brought in this big story. I don't see a film like Black Widow or even Doctor Strange 2 having that same or Eternals, which I think is going to be great, having that same kind of cultural impact. Well, you're, the difference that I think you're seeing with WandaVision is and it may not hold for every show. WandaVision correctly uses the mystery box storytelling because it has an answer and it's every week and it's in very small bites. Again, it's they mirror comic books a little bit more, whereas the movies are more like buying the trade paperback and reading the whole lump crossover at once. Um, in the near future, I, I, I think Disney's going to double down on streaming shows. It, it just makes sense. I mean, who knows when they're going to be able to produce the kind of box office receipts that they need to sustain those movies. What I hope happens is that the movies become the source of crossover events and the TV shows are more like the individual issues. Gotcha. So the shows spotlight yeah. individual characters and the movies are like, all right, this is our, was with the secret, what was the uh, Brian Michael Bendis one with the Skrull secret, whatever, secret invasion, secret like, invasion, you know, yeah, secret yeah. invasion or whatever. Like you, those, those will be the movies, but the shows will be your individual titles. It just as a comic book fan. That's what I'd like to see. Now, as someone who's a fan of cinema, I don't necessarily think that giving people homework to watch a TV show so they can enjoy a movie is the way to go. But then again, people are going to watch my channel to get a recap video. So it's, it's all good for me, you know, regardless, because I'm going to watch it no matter what. Well, what's interesting is how, I mean, for years, it's always been the conventional wisdom that you need to shave off the rough edges of weirdness on all these comic book characters in order to make them accessible to mainstream audiences. Yeah, and I've always rejected that, and I've always pushed back on yeah. it. Clearly, there's an audience 
for the weirdest, strangest corners of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And a channel like yours is absolutely evidence of that. So will we stop seeing this idiotic notion in studios that, oh, well, if you're going to adapt this character or this team or this franchise, you have to find a way to simplify it so that dumbasses can uh, can go see it in the theater? Because I feel like we're finally crossing over to the point where it's like, embrace all the, the, the weird little details that give these um, these universes so much color and flavor. I think you already have seen that. I think that certain properties have still been mishandled in these last couple of years, like, you know, Dark Phoenix, et cetera. Yeah. But one thing that Marvel does is they will have these bizarre concepts, but there's almost always an audience proxy in the room. You know, uh, Avengers Endgame, the scene where they're talking about time travel and Don Cheadle is literally listing all these time travel movies, which you and I as cinephiles, that's that's our knowledge of time travel. I presume you don't have a degree in theoretical yeah, physics. Exactly. <laughs> right. So all, all I, I need to know, I learned from Back to the Future. <laughs> exactly. Right. And then it's funny that game said, oh, Back to the Future 2 was a bunch of bullshit. And then they copied the plot of Back to the Future 2. Um, so they always have an audience proxy. And sometimes it's the main character like Scott Lang. Sometimes the side character like Darcy Lewis. But there's always someone there for us to identify with and go, who's commenting on the weird stuff, you know? And Guardians of the Galaxy, it was the hero, the Star-Lord, who was the kind of everyman. And that's really smart. And that's something that, like, you look at the Star Wars prequel trilogy that they really lacked. They didn't have that, like, go-to guy who is just, like, the person, whoa! And yeah, by the way... All, it was all stately. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that go-to character should have been Owen Lars. I think Owen Lars should have been, like, Anakin's friend who was traveling with him and was like, oh, my God! You know, not like his literal brother, but... Is like buddy. But anyways, that's beside the point. Um, so that's why I think when you're talking about franchises and, and studios wanting to shave off those rough edges, you're already seeing it. You know, you're already seeing studios embrace comic accurate costumes. They don't have to be wearing leather. Uh, it doesn't have to be photorealistic. It doesn't have to be an action movie where a couple people occasionally use superpowers. The effects have made everything so cheap that budgets aren't as much of a concern as they used to be. They they've seen that it works, you know, that people will flock to this. And there's the majority of people who watch these movies never read the comics. Yeah, they, but they will watch Screen Crush. But it, what you're reminding me of is how Zack Snyder had this horrible uphill battle to even introduce the idea of the Kryptonian regeneration suit for uh, Henry Cavill and how everybody at Warner Brothers was second guessing him. Oh, kids don't want to understand how we're going to sell a toy. Just all these and, it's Henry Cavill. He's beautiful. He's covered in muscles. Like they, they will get it and they will just go with it. And they will watch a video on YouTube that explains the death and return of Superman from the early 90s. And then everybody's up to speed. And so for me, as someone who loves all that minutiae, I'm totally embracing it. But also speaking of minutiae, we do need to give a shout out to our mutual friend, Bill Scurry, who I think two weeks ago or what, last week, I can't remember which, you gave him two shout outs to one of your videos of WandaVision talking about like split diopters and things like that. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, to what degree are you open to input from other people, and what, how would you characterize your relationship with Bill Scurry? Are y'all friends through Kevin Marr? Or g give me give me some background information. Uh, well, the first question, I'm I'm pretty open. Like I'll, I'm like you. I wake up at one to watch one division at four a.m. and when I finish it, I tweet out. Anybody see any Easter eggs? So I'll do that, and then I'll. Well, the process is I'll tweet that. I'll just then I'll start writing out my script, and then when I finish, if I go and I see any tweets of things that I didn't catch. I'll screen cap and I'll credit that person. Um, and then when the video is almost done, I'll usually do a run through the internet. Usually people don't have their articles up by that point. But if I see something else interesting from a rival website, I'll credit them too. I try not to, but <laughs> if it's really good, I'll, I'll put them in. Um, I actually met Bill. 
I had a random gig at NYU taping a comedy show, a stand up comedy show that it was a benefit or a party some comedy person was throwing for someone. And I want to say it was maybe Laura Keitlinger was there. But anyways, Bill was there and he happened to be sitting in front of me. We struck up a conversation. Fast forward years later, I'd met Ke- I'd met Kevin Marr through completely different means through the Iron Mule Film Festival, where I was, you know, put up a short film every now and then. And then lo and behold, there's Bill at a Kevin Geeks Out show. Very nice. Which are, you know, if you're listening, you don't know, Kevin Geeks Out's this really great series that Kevin Marr does where he um, invites different guest hosts. I've been on it. Bill's been on it. Yeah, I've, to, uh, I've been lucky enough a... to do it twice. So yeah, I got to talk about Peckinpah. Yeah. I got to talk about Stephen King. So yeah, that was a ton of fun. Oh, that's great. I talked about uh, my theory that'll make it into a video someday that the shark that Fonzie jumps over is actually Richie's long lost brother, Chuck. Very nice. <laughs> I made it work. I, I, and then I talked about the, uh, the Christmas Flintstones commercial, the Santa. <laughs> <laughs> like but that's right Santa up Kevin Mars alley. I mean, for people who yeah, know Kevin Mars, he, he, like, he starts, starts drooling when he starts hearing these kinds of pitches. He especially loved the Fonzie one. He like managed to work it in. So then I met Bill through there and then just was a very, very early supporter of my work on Screen Crush. Very nice. Even when I was just starting out. So like it was great to have him there just to kind of like always encouraging me when I'd see him around and online. Yeah, Kevin. Plus great. he does date. He does Daily Cobra Commander, which is like one of my favorite things on the internet. Yeah, I met Bill through Kevin Marr's show, and we, we struck up a conversation about Mel Brooks. So he came on Wrong Reel. We did mm-hmm. a giant episode about Mel Brooks, and he's been on Wrong Reel probably like 15 or 20 times since. But Kevin Marr's been on a handful of times, so a giant Planet of the Apes episode, and we also tackled some, oh, of, his, yeah. some of his favorite filmmakers. But he's coming back soon to talk about end-of-life, end-of-career Orson Welles appearances when he, after he stopped directing films and was just doing commercials and TV and animation and stuff like yeah. that. And so uh, I feel like that will be an ideal topic for uh, Kevin Marr. So huge shout-out to both Kevin Marr and to Bill Scurry and all of our uh, mutual friends. So let's uh, look into your crystal ball. Okay. Since, I guess, Blade, superheroes have slowly but surely started to dominate mainstream entertainment now more so than ever i mean i see things like um the fact that mark miller's jupiter legacy is being made into a giant show for netflix and coming out in may tells you all you need to know about how even the most obscure titles and comics are now getting like you know the giant big or not big stream but the giant netflix treatment or the fact that the boys is doing so well on amazon or that disney mm-hmm. plus has what, like a dozen marvel shows in development Will the next 20 years be dominated by the genre as well? Or are we about to see a seismic change that pivots away from it? Like, obviously in the 50s, you had historical epics and biblical epics, and they were very much the taste of the Mm -hmm. day. But once audiences were over them, they're like, no, we want Easy Rider now. And like, so Hollywood Mm -hmm. had to pivot. Do you, what, what do you anticipate for the future of this? Because obviously you follow this trend as deep, with as much detail as anybody out there. Do you, I mean, I, I don't see any signs right now of it being on the decline, if anything, the t- total opposite. Well, Blade was interesting for you to mention because Blade is the specific pivot point. Before, and Batman 89 kind of did this, but Blade was the point where they took an action film and made it a little bit about superheroes. You know, So they didn't even have the Marvel logo in front of it. Um, Batman 89, when you rewatch it, does have Batman. He's in costume, but it's a lot like an action movie from the 80s. You know, he's like killing guys and stuff and throwing them off of things, things we wouldn't approve of in a Batman movie today. Um, so it's it, if you look at that, those 80s action movies did see ground to sci-fi and comic book films because The Matrix came out the next year. 
not because people were necessarily tired of those movies, but because the stars had aged out of them a little bit and because something new came along that was even more interesting. I don't think that there's going to be a mass superhero burnout as long as they're still quality and showing us something new. And that's what Marvel, hopefully with these Disney Plus shows, continues to do is reinvent the medium. There's also like 2017 got a lot of talk because you had you know, Ragnarok, you had Wonder Woman, you had Logan, all these different, but year before Deadpool, kind of taking the genre and saying, oh, it could be a goofy sci-fi comedy with like dramatic undertones. It could be a comedy. It could be a Western like Logan. Um, so you have all these filmmakers whose studios are trusting to tell stories just through this lens in the same way you would hire a filmmaker to do a romance or a Western. Um, the thing that'll really change it is when the next medium comes along. And I don't know what that is. Yeah. You know, I don't know where American culture or world culture is going to be in 10, 20 years. You mentioned Easy Rider. You know, that was part of a larger movement in the 60s, even in musicals. You know, Camelot was a bust. Yeah. Because smaller, more intimate things like cabaret were kind of where the genre was pointed. Um, I think it just depends on where we're at and what the next audience wants. I don't see people all of a sudden... I don't see like a return to that 70s aesthetic of blockbuster dramas you know, like Kramer versus Kramer. I don't I don't know when we'll ever get to that point again where audiences are savvy enough and intelligent enough to appreciate that kind of thing on a mass I think scale. Queen's Gambit was close for our streaming moment. Queen's Gambit mm-hmm. is an example of something that's a drama that can take mm-hmm. off like a rocket. But the the, exa- the examples are few and far between, unfortunately. But what's funny when you're talking about how what keeps the genre fresh is all these different new directions for shows and movies, whether you're talking about Logan or Deadpool or whatever the case might be. But it's funny how the audience for a lot of this really seems to push back initially. I mean, when WandaVision first came out, a lot of people were kind of non-committal in their, right. their affection for it. Like, oh, this is weird. It's not what I want. Like, they wanted more Endgame. They wanted more Infinity War. Yep, it's like, you're right. But the reason you like the MCU is because Guardians of the Galaxy did something different. Winter Soldier did something different. But they seem to be almost like uh, being like they're getting like locked in amber in terms of what they want the MCU aesthetic to be. And I, my hope is that they will remain open to new directions because it's only through new directions that the superheroes will, will remain culturally relevant. Absolutely. Well, and I I'm going to disagree with you a little bit on Queen's Gambit because Queen's Gambit is a drama, but it's the structure of a sports movie. Gotcha. And and a superhero movie. Yeah. You know, I mentioned before that they changed it to where it's like she has a superpower that's exactly what it is i can't think of a superhero movie off the top of my head that it follows the the structure of but she's you know a mutant she's born with a superpower she's denied that power by the authority and then she slowly has to come into confidence and use it you know herself against greater and greater challenges it's like in the movies also staged with boss fights like some of the that's a trope that i can't stand in movies now but movies are structured like video games where there's a boss fight and then you have to you finally beat that boss, you go to the next one until finally you end up at Thanos. Queen's Gambit does the same thing. You know, it's the structure of a sports movie, except the person has a superpower and she's a chess player. Or you look at something like Last Jedi where it's like, fetch the thing in order to fetch the thing in order to fetch the right. thing. And then you fight the final boss. Like, oh, are, are we playing World of Warcraft or are we right. you know, well, watching, Rise, watching a movie? That was Rise of Skywalker more. Oh, sorry, sorry. What, what did like, I say? Yeah. Did I say Last, Jedi? Last yeah, Jedi? Yeah, Rise of Skywalker. Rise of Skywalker had yeah. like chase this, find this, which leads you to the yep. next thing. But it was like three different items, and finally they bumped into... It was all uh, fetch quest that yeah. ultimately could have been one item. Yeah. It was just a way to keep your characters busy. That's the kind of screenplay you write when Disney hires you with like two months to go to a production, and they won't move the date. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> so what killed the prestige drama? Was it Meet Joe Black? Was that the end of the big budget prestige drama? Because in the 80s oh, and 90s, we did have them. But in the 21st century, yeah. very few. Oh, see, Meet Joe Black's an interesting point. Legends of the not the drum on Brad Pitt too hard, but Legends of the Fall was before that, right? I think that was like 91, 92, and Meet Joe Black, I believe. Because people went to see Meet Joe Black to see the trailer for Phantom That was 98. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, that was for the <laughs> – that's right. But – <laughs> that scene where he gets hit by the cars which is a, an amazing oh. gift to this day <laughs> it really is like that gift is just oh that's so good i need to use that in more screen crush videos actually just like put a, put text on it to represent whatever i'm talking about um it's it's not so much i think the decline of prestige i don't think again it's not one movie that kills it you know i think that star power also has something to do with it we re, like robert downey jr making millions and millions of dollars in films films are doing great and then the judge flops Yep. Because star power just isn't the draw that it used to be. Yeah. Anthony Mackey said, I'm not a star. Falcon's a star. Yeah. And people have, you know, friends of mine are like, hey, your Screen Crush videos are doing great. You're famous. I'm like, I'm not famous. The, like, Ashley well, yeah. Olsen's famous. famous. You know, yeah. Right. I'm just the guy talking about it. Like, it could be anyone doing it. Um, I think, yeah, that's a big part of it, too. That being said, like, people still go to Tom Cruise movies, right? People yeah, still go to Tom Hanks movies, but not to the degree. But they I guess did. Like, like Tom Cruise, it's like he's the world's weirdest special effect, where he's nearly sixty and breaking his leg, doing crazy stunts and jumping off buildings right. and hanging onto planes and going into space in an upcoming production. I mean, he is. Yeah, you got to have a gimmick. He's David Blaine meets movie star, and the, he's got this incredible longevity. But he's one of the, he's one of the last. I feel like he, Leo, Brad, like Denzel Washington to a degree. But like, there's certain stars from the '90s who have been able to hang on to it. But I feel like all the new stars, like Hemsworth, Pratt, mm -hmm. Evans, etc., they all are famous because of the characters they play. I agree. There's a couple exceptions. Um, Maybe not now, but for a while, I think Jennifer Lawrence is one of those people who really had a fan base. Yeah, Silver Linings Playbook on where she was huge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And maybe, you know, I don't know. It's interesting to see people like Bradley Cooper, who, even though he voices Rocket, isn't really associated with a large franchise, but continues to make movies that people really like. So maybe he's the counterpoint to that. He's yeah. that person who is still a movie star. His movies aren't going to bank you $400 million because that's just for superhero movies. But if you're looking for your prestige drama and you want that guy involved, Bradley Cooper's your guy. And watch it. Probably, probably right now he's just been like cast as Indiana Jones. And his <laughs> latest musical was a departure from um, from all these superheroes and everything. However, it was still a remake of a remake of a remake. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think it's the – so I guess that's the – if you want to do a prestige drama, then you need to do like the third or fourth iteration of a classic drama that's already been done many, many times in the past with Barbara Streisand and Judy Garland, et cetera, uh -huh. and so forth. Well, um, as somebody I – mean, we were talking before we started recording about – you've read a lot of great fantasy and sci-fi and comics and everything. As we start to draw this down to a close – any major undiscovered country or new frontiers where there's a series of books or even just great events or crossovers in the comics that you feel like are just ripe for the taking that should be getting exploited and getting the big or small screen treatment. Like just as a fan, what would you like to see tackled by some of these giant platforms? Um, I didn't think you were going to say comics. So I had a different answer prepared as you were in the middle of a sentence and I'll, I'll answer or novels. Yeah. Not e either or. Yeah. Well, I'm, there's, I got an answer for the novels that I think is pretty exciting. Um, and it, it may not be the right time for this story, but one of my favorite authors is a guy named Harry Turtledove. He writes alternative fiction, like alternative history. So what if 
Aliens Invaded During World War II is one of his series. That would be a great one. Uh, My favorite of his, though, is about the South winning the Civil War and kind of how that echoes throughout the next century. You know, he has this long series that basically starts at, during World War One. Didn't that Benioff, continues so, Benioff and Weiss, but Benioff and Weiss try to do that with Confederate, and the whole internet decided to destroy them. They did, them. yeah, yeah, <laughs> they did. And there was also a, doc, a, a a faux documentary made a few years ago about the same thing. And you know, even like Man in the High Castle is probably a little too close to home for people. But what's brilliant about his book series is he shows it can happen here. You know, he should what you know, what happened in Germany isn't unique to Germans. It's it can happen anywhere because it's human beings and we need to be on watch for it. And the way he's very slowly unravels this, like the character who ends up becoming the Hitler character in the novels just starts off as a guy. You know, you have no you would have no indication in the first two books that this guy has anything wrong with them or that these other characters will grow up to be will go on to be like horrible people committing atrocities. Um and also, like, it's a multi-point of view novel, and it takes a lot of point of view of the African-Americans, you know, who were freed, who were slaves, and, are, you know, it's just a great series. I would love to see that adapted in some form. Along those same it, lines, I'm really hoping that uh, Villeneuve will get far enough in his Dune franchise where we can see the changing of Paul Atreides, where he goes from messiah to tyrant to outcast, essentially, and that arc – as a fan, you're like, no, wait, I thought he was the hero, but now everything's changing and so on and so forth. But I love the way like you see how his crusade essentially becomes a threat to the entire universe. Like, oh my God, uh-huh. is there gonna be a jihad in my name? Just like yeah. and so but <laughs> exactly. I, I feel like if the franchise it needs to get obviously first and foremost, the first half of the first book needs to be a success this coming fall to p- potentially unlock the door to any of this stuff. But like is, is the upcoming movie only the first half of the first, the first book? half of the first book? I did not know that. Well, and I wouldn't... haven't shot the second half of the first book, so it has to be a hit or you'll just have oh, no. the first half of the first book and that's all you'll get forever. So. I don't think he's going to want to make unless he's under contract. I think that Warner Brothers has pissed him off enough to where he's not going to want to touch that. Yeah. That, don't tell that to Bill Scurry. <laughs> you, you, will, <laughs> you will wreck his entire I'll day. keep it a secret. Yeah, he and I um, are both ma- massive, massive fans. The comic book story I want to see adapted is um, Scalped would be great. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, I've got Scalped. Yeah. Uh, I've got the first four or five uh, oh, down fantastic. here somewhere on my shelf. And anyway, but Jason Aaron's series was – it's Sopranos on an Indian, Indian reservation. It's amazing. And uh, that – and, you know, to a lesser extent, Why the Last Man, which has been in and out of development for years. Yeah. But every time I, I hear about Why the Last Man being developed or another version, I'm like, why are you not – <laughs> peak, peak Brian K. Vaughn, but yeah, I had uh, Daniele Boyelli, my favorite uh, podcast historian on the podcast, and he was talking. We were talking about uh, Last of the Mohicans, and he's mm-hmm. um, he's an expert on uh, indigenous tribes and whatnot. And um, we were talking about what are what are like the future of TV and film that could really get that culture right. And that scalp was at the top of my list. It's just, oh, interesting. Yeah, it's okay. absolutely astonishing. And Jason Aaron, I mean, he's multi talented and has tackled a lot of different characters really well. I mean, I loved his arc on Wolverine and. He, he's great. Scalped is like it deserves the HBO prestige f- drama format, and it would just absolutely destroy people in the in the best possible way. It would it would, it would blow people's yeah. minds. That's the one I, I I hope there's room for that. In the same way that the comic books, you know, the, the funny books made room in the superhero age for these other kind of vertigo stories. I really hope there is room for the, adapting those stories as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, in, in the final minutes that I've got. What does the future hold for Ryan Airy, and where can people find your work online? 
Well, the future right now is one division, one division, one division. Uh, basically, like making as much content we can about theories relating to that show. Then we got a couple weeks till the next one starts up. <laughs> Falcon in the Winter Soldier. Yeah, we get a one weekend break and then uh, yeah, yeah. Then the next show comes right, right on its heels. We do get a break before Loki, but that's the Bad Batch, so it's the same thing. Like it's basically Disney Plus is keeping me employed for a while. Um, so you can, you know, catch me on Twitter at Ryan Airy. And then every week, at least minimum one Easter egg video about whatever hot show is out. Plus we also do longer form Easter egg or longer form video essays. We have one coming out about all the Western and samurai influences in the Mandalorian. We do versus videos. I have one coming out about Cobra Kai and the star Wars sequel trilogy, where we compare two different movies or franchises and pick one scene that defines the best and the worst of both. Um, and just sometimes we'll just make a breaking bad video because we love it. You can't dive deep enough into that show. Yeah. So is there a show or a franchise where no matter how much traffic, um, the videos about it generate where you're covering it, no matter what, irrespective of the audience interest, we're like, I'm going to die on this hill mm-hmm. discussing this show or movie. Watchmen was like that. Yeah. Our Watchmen videos never got huge numbers, but the people who watched them were very like they were tweeting at Screen Crush. Yeah, the I break, if I wasn't, yeah. yeah, I mean, I loved, I loved, I will talk about, I will die on the hill for that show. I will talk about that yeah, ad nauseum. Um, other than that, it's really hard to make a video about an episode of a show as soon as it airs. Like it's extremely difficult to do. So, you know, ideal life, I just get to write those, send them off to an editor, and then I can lean back and, and work on my <laughs> my kind of hot pie in the sky video essays. Um, I don't know. Sometimes, is there a show coming out that, I don't know. It just depends on the show I'd have to see. I haven't watched the first episode of Superman and Lois yet, you know, and I tend not to cover those shows because there's very strict copyright guides on YouTube to where if I even include like a very short clip of the show to demonstrate what I'm talking about, they will demonetize it. So yeah. I always think, what's the point? Yeah. You know, they can, um, they're disincentivizing people show, from making their shows more popular. <laughs> I, I don't, if for a couple hundred bucks, Yeah. you know, that, it doesn't make sense. So we have to use just still frames for those. But if you're using still frames, I think it brings down the quality of the video. So it's like this, but you can make them faster. Yep. Absolutely. Um, there, there's channels that cover every CW show and they do great. You know, maybe I could do that, but boy, it's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, I would rather spend like a month in jail than follow every CW show. <laughs> but that's just I me. did it for a while. It's it's hard. Yeah, it's, but there's a lot. It's a lot of hours. But there is an, a fan base that adores them. So more power to them. Mm-hmm. Well, Ryan, I can't thank you enough for coming on Wrong Real. It's a pleasure to meet you, and hopefully. If and when New York resembles something like something kind of related to normalcy, we will see Kevin Marr do uh, Kevin Geeks out at the brand new Alamo Draft House in downtown Manhattan, and we can all hang out and tilt back a little whiskey and shoot the shit about shows and movies and that sort of thing. But you're welcome to come back on Wrong Reel anytime. We will roll up the carpet for you for any topic, especially if it's a topic that's passion that you're passionate about, but may or may not necessarily be um, something you can cover on Screen Crush. So if there's like mm-hmm. a really obscure old movie or old franchise or old filmmaker, our doors are always open i will talk about network or star trek until i collapse very nice yeah well, network's network's my favorite movie of all time and yeah. i can't cover it on the channel <laughs> so. interesting yeah well shit 
I adore networking. I've seen it more times than I can count. So yeah, to be continued yeah. on that front. Well, we hope you all have enjoyed this episode. Please remember to leave a rating, review, subscribe, all that good stuff, and definitely hunt down Ryan Airy on YouTube and on Twitter. And coming up in the near future, we've got a big episode about Carl Theodore Dreyer. Speaking of obscure art house uh, <laughs> topics, which I'm recording with Dave Eves this weekend, and we hope we'll be back for that. But thanks so much for listening. We greatly appreciate it. But more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. Ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.